On December the 24th, 1920, J.R.R. Tolkien sat down in his study and he wrote a letter to his three-year-old son, John, who had recently asked him about Father Christmas, who was the British, you know, British version of Santa Claus. And so Tolkien uh, writes this letter to John as Father Christmas. He addresses it from Christmas House, North Pole. He writes in squiggly letters with red ink as a way to kind of mimic the trembling hand of an aged Father Christmas. And the accompanying photo that he pictured that he made up, you, you see this charming red-coated figure with a long white beard and rosy red nose walking through the snow. And then in the second picture at the bottom here, you see the previous one, actually. This one down here, you see uh, Father Christmas's dome-shaped house there at the North Pole on this glowing wintry hillside, a staircase lit with lanterns that you may be able to pick out there. Um, That was 1920. Then came a letter in 1921 from Father Christmas. Another letter in 1922. Another letter in 1923. All told, for 23 straight years, every Christmas Eve or so, Tolkien would write a letter to his four children addressed from Father Christmas. And they began kind of like simple letters. The kind of letters that would be, oh, ho, 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 I'm just now off to Oxford with a bundle of toys. But as the years progressed, they evolved into these very large and fanciful tales about life at the North Pole um, and this lovable, silly figure who you may have seen before. The North Polar Bear, he's coming. There he is, the North Polar Bear, and he has fallen down the stairs. He's always trying to help out Santa or, or Father Christmas, sorry, I'm not British. Uh, he's here spilled all of the uh, gifts that are, are meant for the children. Um, every letter that he wrote comes with an accompanying artwork, and they were addressed in envelopes that had uh, North Pole postage stamps. And then later, Tolkien even was able to persuade the postman to carry the letters and to deliver the letters with the daily post. So here, here it is. How many of, of you have ever read or, or seen that? Really? Not, nobody? Okay, of course the Cheney crew <laughs> has, but there, it is so good. It, it is so good. In fact, in, in my previous church, on some Christmases, I would actually read one of the letters as part of um, uh, Lessons in Carol's service. 23 straight years, he did it. Tales of red gnomes and polar bears and goblins and Father Christmas. And the question I want to ask is, why did he go to all that energy? Why did he do it? Like, was it merely to entertain his children? And I'm sure that was part of it, right? Was it simply because he was an artistic genius, a literary genius and a creative virtuoso? I mean, I'm sure that was part of it too. But I think the, the main reason, and this is the reason that he would give, the reason that he spent 23 years of time writing the stories, doing this artwork, was to simply give the children a spark of enchantment. He wanted to communicate that this world, this life, this reality, it is no ordinary life and world and reality. For if this is the world that has been visited by God himself, then this is no ordinary place. This is an enchanted world. And it's one of my favorite topics to talk about at Christmas time. So what I thought we would do, because we don't have a Christmas Eve or day service this year, as Craig suggests, said already, um, 
I just want to use this opportunity to preach something Christmassy from a passage that you would never associate with Christmas. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, with a, a sprinkling of Luke chapter 2, which is a Christmas passage uh, included. Um, and I'll come back to Tolkien in just a moment. But yeah, Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. What does this have to do with Christmas? Uh, it's at the very end of the letter. It's in these... Uh, this section where the author is kind of wrapping up his argument and he's giving instructions for Christians on how they are ought, they ought to live. And he says this, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, as we come to you in your word right now, we ask that you would spark our sense of enchantment and wonder at the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. And may, may we be a changed people because we live in an enchanted world. Uh, speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. The reference that he makes there is most likely to Genesis chapter 18. In the Old Testament, Father Abraham uh, is on a, a, alongside a road one day when a couple of strangers walk by, and Abraham, um, he provides them Middle Eastern hosp- hospitality. They just look like normal s- strangers. They need food. They need a place to stay. Only Ang- Abraham discovers that they turn out to be angels in disguise. And so the author of Hebrews is... He's speaking to an issue that's very important in their world. Like travel in the ancient world was difficult and finding a safe place to stay uh, was a major chore. So there was an expectation that you as Christians, as a small, small little minority group in the Roman Empire, that if another Christian were to come into your city and need a place to stay and need housing and lodging and, and food, that of course you would open your, the doors of your home to them. And you know, that was a must to care for traveling Christians. But then he uses this, this um, surprising line. He says, it's almost, as if, it's almost as if he's saying, like, show hospitality, church, because you never know. You never know. It might be an angel that you're actually entertaining. It's been one of my favorite verses of the Bible, um, simply because it's a verse that we would never, ever say in our context, would we? Like in our frame of reference, at this time and place that we live in, um, we would never say, you know, show hospitality because, who knows, it might, you might be having angels for dinner. Because we live in a frame of reference where belief in God seems uh, unnecessary at best. Uh, we don't believe in the supernatural. And to suggest that, like, we might come into contact with supernatural spiritual beings for dinner, uh, like, uh, who would say that above, you know, somebody with a third grade education? It's, it's simply just not part of our world. There's another angel story, though, in the Old Testament that I think is in- instructive to us. Uh, it's found in 2 Kings chapter 6. And the story goes that Elisha, the prophet, has been besieged by an enemy army. Uh, an army has come into the valley that he lives in, and his house is surrounded by horsemen and chariots, and um, all, all hope is lost, and Elisha's servant is just terrified because, like, what are we going to do? We're, it's just the two of us in the house. And Elisha, if you've read it before, you know, he's not worried one bit. And he says this. He says to his servant, Fear not, 
for there are more on our side than on theirs. And then the servant like looks out through the window again and voila, God has opened his eyes to see that the surrounding hillsides around the house that they were staying in are covered with angels. It's like he's in the valley of a bowl full of angels. And if you think about it, that's really what the shepherds were experiencing on that first Christmas night. Now, it was an upside down uh, bowl full of angels. But when they looked up into the Bethlehem sky, the whole curvature of that, of, of the sky was, was full of these majestic messenger warriors. It's, it's almost as if the, the day that Jesus came into the world, uh, he punctured a hole, a, a hole in the veil between the seen and the unseen. And in, like through that hole, streams just thousands and thousands of angels filling the night sky, uh, singing at the top of their voices. I can't even, I, I can't hardly believe how loud it must have been to hear, Gloria in excelsis Deo! Glory to God in the highest. Can you imagine it? But that is one of the most um, human things that we are to do. Imagination. Ah, I love imagination. Um, It is that distinctly human capacity by which we image, we create mental images of anything that is not immediately visible to our eyes. Now, the shepherds, they didn't need any imagination that night. (laughs) They were exposed to one of the greatest displays of glory anyone has ever seen. And also, interestingly, there are other parts of the world today where they don't require nearly as much imagination because, you know, I've heard story after story of people in different parts of the world seeing visions of Jesus in their dreams. Like, that happens regularly. But, uh, not so much here in South Scottsdale or on the campus at, at ASU or, or, or wherever, at the campus of UVA, wherever you are at. Um, we need imagination. We need to create mental in- images of anything that is not immediately visible to our eyes. We especially need it. Imagination is, is so especially important because life is so hard. And most of the time, like, all we can see are our troubles. We can't see angels. We can't see Jesus. We can't see God. We might see demons. But really, all we see is our struggles. You know, another one of um, J.R. Tolkien's closest friends was uh, C.S. Lewis. And he, too, was this prolific, you know, masterful author who was interested in sparking the imagination of children. So you, some of you, I'm sure, have read The Chronicles of Narnia. That's written for a ch- child's imagination. Lewis wrote other books. His space trilogy is intended to spark the imagination um, of, of adults. But uh, he put it so well when he put it this way. When he's speaking here about, like, enchantment and imagination, he says, A child does not despise real woods because he has read of enchanted woods. The reading makes all the real woods more enchanted. Do you kind of get what he means by that? Like, like when you, as a child, walk into a forest and your imagination is is full of, uh, like, wondering, are there fairies or are there nymphs? Not to suggest that those are real, they're not, but th- th- there's just a sense of wonderment that you, you go into the world, like, sensing. Um, and I think in the same way, uh, you know, imagining a sky, a night sky full of thousands of angels, 
It makes skies all the more angelic. It makes skies all the more enchanting. Or especially to look at this earth and to know that God has set his feet on this place. It makes all ground, all earth more hallowed, more enchanting, more mysterious, more wonderful. And I, I don't have to tell you that perhaps one of the most defining features of American life today is our lack of enchantment. We live at, at a time and in a place, in, in a world of disenchantment. Um, and, you know, so much of our cultural stories are just like, the world is coming apart at the seams, and it's primarily because of the political vision, visions on the other side. So if we get the right political leader in from the right political party in power, then, you know, if, then that's good. But if we don't, then it's the end of the world as we know it. And, and like, there's just no, there's, no, there's no enchantment when politics are the new religion. I mean, social media, like, that's where enchantment goes to die. <laughs> there's no enchantment with social media. And... and there's just anxiety, and on and on and on we could go to, to get at it. But, but if what we celebrate at Christmas is true, then this is no ordinary world. It has been created, and it has been visited by God. It has been walked on by the divine, and therefore wonder is, is everywhere. Wonder is everywhere for the person who has the eyes to see it. Give you an example. You may not know it, but your heart beats 100,000 100, times a day. You give birth to 100 million red blood cells a day. Your brain is the most complex structure known to mankind. Um, your eyes can, dis- can distinguish up to a million color surfaces. Your bones are as strong as iron, and you have 60,000 thousand miles of blood vessels in your body like you if you have the eyes to see it you are a work of art and what the bible says is god became what you are like that's the wonder of christmas god became what you are now why would he do that maybe i could illustrate it with a true story kathy keller is the wife of a well-known famous pastor by the name of tim timothy keller when she was a little girl, uh, she ended up writing four letters to C.S. Lewis. Lewis lived in Oxford in England. Kathy Keller lived here in the United States. Uh, he wrote, she wrote him four letters, and who would have guessed it? He wrote back to her every time, <laughs> four times. Um, and in one of her letters, so she tells him of this like terrible story of what something that happened to her. So she she. Uh, she ended up writing a mystery that was supposed to be in her junior high newspaper. And once the editor like went and published it, the editor uh, failed to include the last paragraph of, the, of her story in the school newspaper. Now, the problem with that is if you're a junior high kid writing a mystery, like the way that you tell who does it is you do so in the very last paragraph of your story. Well, what it's not put in into the newspaper, then the story makes absolutely no sense. Like it's a mystery that doesn't have any, um, any unmasking. And so Kathy Keller is age 12 at the time. And she writes to C.S. Lewis about this, complaining um, about this. And and would you believe it? C.S. Lewis writes back to her with complete sympathy. Um, he takes her seriously, and he says something to the effect of, like, um, the same sort of thing has happened to me more than once. <laughs> and uh, we writers, we writers, we have to go through things like this. Takes her completely seriously. 
Well, years later, Kathy Keller is reading a biography that was written about C.S. Lewis, and she discovers this um, shocking uh, truth that Lewis hated to write letters. He couldn't stand it. Um, And at the time he was writing her, he was so sick, um, near the end of his life, he could no longer write his letters by hand. He either had to type them, or he had to dictate those letters and have his brother type them. And so the last letter he wrote to her was 11 days before she died, and it was typed on on a typewriter. And here is, like, one of the greatest authors of all time, like, and one of my heroes, and he's so sick and dying, and he hates to write letters, but every time a little girl across the Atlantic Ocean in the United States writes to him, moaning about how her school paper had butchered her story, like, he identifies with her and shows her sympathy. Like, to think that such a great man would take the time to identify with her in that way, like, it, it, I mean, you can see it, it makes me emotional. I start, I start to cry. And how much more? The Son of God, Jesus, who called the stars into existence with the sound of his voice, with, that he would come to identify with us, that he would want to visit this place, that he would want to take on like, all of the sorrows and the frailties of humanity, that he would, want, that he would be willing to, to take the medicine of, of suffering that you and I have to, to drink. Um, like when he came to be with us, he was placed in a feeding trough. When he came into this world as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, he was put, he was placed in, we call it a manger, but it was a feeding trough out of which like oxen or donkeys would have eaten. Uh, it's funny when you go back to the Christmas story in Luke 2, the, the word manger in uh, those short verses gets repeated three times. And it's simply because it's so shocking <laughs> that when God comes to, to identify with us, he would be placed in a feeding trough. Luke 2, verse 12, this will be a sign to you, the shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Finding a baby wrapped in claws, that's no sign. Finding a baby in a feeding trough, now that is a sign. Happens again in Luke 2, verse 16. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a feeding trough. And I just got to think that those people who witnessed that event could never look at a feeding trough the same way again. And I think that's the way that Christmas works. That when you see Jesus on this earth identifying with us, like you can't look at anything here the same way again. It changes the way that we see everything. You know, Tolkien was writing to the children from the end of World War I through World War II in a time of of great bleakness and darkness in Europe. Um, And he didn't want those children to believe that that is the only reality that there is, or that that is really the way things are. And so he would write these stories, enchanting um, imaginative stories, to, to spark something inside of them. Like, one of the reasons why he loved fantasy um, and Lewis loved science fiction was because they believed that there are deep longings inside of our hearts that only fantasies and sci-fi can actually speak to. Um, it's, somebody put it this way, like, all of us human beings have, say, a fascination with escaping time. Like, that's in sci-fi, right? Or all of us, we want to escape death. Well, that's a fantasy. We want to have, we want to have communion with uh, other living things. 
very much part of fantasy. We, we want to live long enough to, to see our artistic and creative dreams realized. We want to be able to find in the end a love that perfectly heals all. And all of that's usually in fantasy and fairy tales. But why do we have those longings? Where do they come from? It's because deep down inside of every one of us, we know that that's the way things ought to be. That that's how things, how this life, it should be. Those longings, escape death, escape time, commune with beings that have more than two legs, angels, discover a love that is everlasting and everlastingly heals. Like those they believed pointed not only to something good, but actually to something that is real because those things are real and possible. If God has visited this planet, if God has visited here, then those possibilities, they're real. If he has been born, then suddenly there's no limit to what kind of things we can look forward to. And I think that is what, you know, Tolkien was trying to point to um, in letters from Father Christmas and in The Lord of the Rings and Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia and, and every great Christian fiction writer. That's, that's the spark um, and the hope that they're trying to point to. To conclude, I want to look at verses 17 and 18. It says that when they, the shepherds, had seen Jesus, him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Um, you probably have heard this preached before by uh, a pastor, but do you realize that uh, this is the funny part about Christmas? That the shepherds, they got an angel. They got a sky full of angels. And everybody else in the world, what did they get? They got shepherds. They got shepherds. See, the shepherds had these supernatural angelic beings who proclaimed to, to them the tidings of good news of the gospel. And it's easy to pay attention to angels, right? But, but while everybody um, else, they, they got a shepherd. Just uh, an, an ordinary kind of fellow. In fact, even less than ordinary. If you've ever been to Christmas services, you know that the shepherds in that day were kind of like ruffian types. They were roughnecks. They were, they were definitely ordinary people. Yes, the good news of Christmas, it's tidings. It starts with angels, but it comes through ordinary people like us. I ask you this question to conclude. Is there someone in your life you need to maybe stir up their imagination a bit? That someone might be you. <laughs> is there someone, is there someone in, in your life that a neighbor, a friend that, that you need to, to speak to? Uh, somebody who lives in this secular bubble where there is no supernatural and where life is just really a grind day after day. Like it's heavy on sex. It's heavy on work. It's like rinse and repeat. Um, is there someone who, who there is no, for whom there is no supernatural that you could be a, a presence of like contagious, imaginative hope? Almost a, a kind of foolishness, almost. A, a whimsy, a wonder that you could be, you could show them um, what that is. As I said, what stands out to me about Hebrews 13 is it never would be spoken by an American pastor to an American church. Hey, church, I want you to be hospitable because you never know. It might be angels coming over for dinner. But why not when the skies can be full of angels? 
and the lands can be full of demons. Because this is no ordinary place. This is a visited planet. God has come. He's come in the person of his son. And that, friends, is what makes it so enchanting. Amen.